Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're beginning The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 4, our Revelation series today with a message entitled The End and the Beginning. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 18 to 22 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There is a line near the end of the book of Revelation that sounds altogether intriguing. Revelation 21 verse 5 says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things. I mean, what can that mean? Well, according to the book of Revelation, this present world will die. Now, that's not just a theological statement. It's a statement meant to bring comfort to suffering Christians. I think of how the book of Revelation begins. The ninth verse of the book says, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So think about how John identifies himself. I mean, first he's on the island of Patmos, which is a Greek island off the coast of modern day Turkey. Now, whether or not John was in an actual physical prison on that island or whether he was given some freedom of movement, well, that's that's not known. But we do know that the Roman authorities had banned him from leaving the island, and so the island served as a place of his imprisonment. But why was John there? Well, he explains, he says, I was on Patmos on account of the word of God or on account of my activities in preaching the word of God. See, the Roman authorities had come to view the preaching of Jesus as Lord as a threat to the empire. You know, whereas under normal conditions, Rome was fairly accepting of any new religion, Rome would not tolerate a religion that insisted that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Rome insisted that all acknowledge that Caesar was Lord and pouring out libations to Caesar was essential to proving your patriotism to the empire. And John should have thought of himself as having gotten off fairly lightly. His exile in Patmos was better than, you know, beheading or crucifixion. And yet, it's quite plain that anyone building churches and preaching the gospel and winning converts to the new faith and holding high the testimony of Jesus needed to be stopped. They they were an enemy of Rome. Now, of course, John is not the only one who's suffering. He writes the book of Revelation to seven churches, and it's true that some of the churches, like, for instance, church in Sardis, the church in Laodicea, seem to have experienced a minimum degree of persecution. At least we can say that no mention is made of their struggle. And the explanation to that can be twofold. We do know from history that Roman persecution of the church was somewhat intermittent. But we also know that Revelation was written during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian and that his reign marked what came to be known as the second persecution against the church. Those of you who know your church history will remember that the first persecution happened under Nero, who blamed the Christians for burning Rome and often burned Christians to death. And Domitian, who ruled Rome from the years AD 81 to 96, was a man who was naturally inclined to cruelty And he also made a law that no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. And furthermore, he helped spur on the superstition that that if there was a famine or an earthquake or some form of disease among the Roman population, that blame should be placed solidly upon the shoulders of Christians. I mean, they had obviously angered the gods. 
And one more matter. Domitian determined that when any Christian was brought before the magistrates, a test of oath was required, and when Christians refused, they should be put to death. So how then did John escape that punishment? One ancient tradition holds that he was actually boiled in oil, and when he miraculously survived, he was only then banished to Patmos. Now, of course, we can't say whether that was true or not, but when John speaks of the patient endurance that is in Jesus, he knows of what he speaks. And that brings us back to the seven churches of Asia, the ones that received the book of Revelation. Even while it's true that certain centers of the empire were more hostile to Christians than others, it's also true that such churches as the church in Sardis, and the church in Laodicea, that these churches were not faithful in evangelism, but instead seemed to be adapting to the culture around them. I mean, contrast that to the words that are written to the church in Pergamum. You know, Revelation 2.13 says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But, and this needs to be said, even while the churches were struggling with persecution from without, they had an equally large problem from within. So we have false teachers like that woman whom John calls Jezebel. Well, she encouraged sexual immorality among believers. Or we might think of the teachings of a heretical Christian sect named the Nicolaitans. These things were plaguing the church from within. And so as we begin the book of Revelation, it becomes clear that not only was John suffering, but that the church of Jesus Christ was right then engaged in a battle for its very existence. And what follows in Revelation, especially when it comes to the rise of Antichrist, I mean, all of that would have made sense to the suffering church of Jesus the church in which John calls himself a partner in tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. But over against this grim and harsh image is another image. As the book of Revelation opens, John is encountered by the risen Jesus who appears before the old man in all his splendor. His face is shining like the sun. A sword is in his hand. I mean, clearly, Jesus appears as King of kings and Lord of lords. His authority and power are unstoppable. And then after giving messages to the seven churches, John suddenly is taken before the throne room of God. And it's hard to read Revelation chapter 4, that great throne room scene, and not contrast what one finds there with what one finds in the city of Rome. Yeah, it's true that the city of Rome was an impressive sight indeed, but when one contrasted the, the splendor of Rome with the splendor of the one who is seated on the throne of heaven, well, there is no comparison. The heavenly throne is surrounded by a sea of glass. It's encircled by a magnificent rainbow. Lightning and thunder emanates from the throne, and the one seated on the throne is so magnificent that John will not describe him. Around the throne are 24 elders clothed in white with golden crowns on their heads. And furthermore, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, and they never stop crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Again, we're led to contrast what we see before the throne of God with what we imagine to be true in Rome. Caesar will soon die, as will the Roman Empire, but this one, the one on the throne of heaven, was and is and is to come. He is 
eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Ah, but who does the one on the throne of heaven favor? For if he favors Rome, the church will soon be no more. And so John describes that the one seated on the throne has a scroll in his hand. You know, much has been said about that scroll, but one thing becomes clear. The scroll contains God's plan of judgment for the earth and also his plan to redeem the earth for his glory. In short, the scroll is the destiny of the human race, the destiny of the earth, and the ultimate plan of God for all of his creation. But who is worthy to break the seals of that scroll, opening the scroll and enacting the plans of God? And as John looks at the scene in heaven, he is told that the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. There's a reference here to the Messiah, the one chosen by the Father to rule all of the earth. But as John looks closely, he sees a lamb standing before the throne, looking as though it has been slaughtered. And then in a splendid scene, all of heaven erupts in a song of praise to the slaughtered lamb who is honored. For this one has ransomed a people for God from every tribe and every language and every people. And with this, we are left in no doubt at all whom heaven favors. Heaven favors Jesus. He is honored above all others, for the elders and the four living creatures worship him. Indeed, all of heaven sings to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. You see, the Lamb is honored even as the Father. What might that mean for the suffering church of Jesus? Well, that would mean that they are to remember that that they are on the side of history. Yeah, from a merely human perspective, it is true that the church of Jesus Christ was right then in a fight for her life. But once the scene before the throne room of heaven is opened, we see a very different perspective. We see that heaven favors the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ, that history is on the side of the ones redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The seven churches need not fear. Dr. Neufeld wrote, there is a line near the end of the book of Revelation that sounds altogether intriguing. Revelation 21.5 says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. All things. What can that mean? Well, according to the book of Revelation, this present world will die. Now, that's not just a theological statement. It's a statement meant to bring comfort to suffering Christians. This month, Dr. Neufeld presents the final volume of his study on the book of Revelation entitled The Triumph of the Lamb. Focusing on the final five chapters, you'll be uniquely engaged and encouraged to discover the incredible plan God has for eternity. And for this month only, we want to make the final volume available to you for only $19 or the entire four-volume series for $75. Both offers include shipping and taxes. So call today for The Triumph of the Lamb at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. So we come back to the words, Behold, I make all things new. God is working out his agenda, and as we come to the end of the book of Revelation, we see how when the battle ends, the Lord Almighty reigns supreme. A great many people are afraid to study the book of Revelation. 
And that's true for a number of reasons. For one, you know, it is true that, that the book contains images and symbols that might be very difficult to interpret. And furthermore, almost everyone knows that when it comes to the study of eschatology, or the study of the things that accompany the end of the age, that there are a great many faithful Christian Bible teachers that, that do have disagreements about how to understand the book of Revelation. And for that reason, a great many people have simply tuned out. I mean, if all those faithful Bible teachers don't agree, I mean, who am I to understand the book? And so we pay a great deal more attention to other books in the Bible, you know, the Gospel of John, the book of Romans, so forth. Many of us think of Revelation, if we're honest about it, as a book that leads to endless speculation about things in the future and not about the practical realities of our own lives. But when we think this way, we're wrong. I mean, for one, let's return back to the beginning of the book. Revelation 1 verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Now, please remember that those words are written long before the printing press. You know, that means it was written at a time when people, to the most part, were unable to get their own copy of the book of Revelation. So the book is written to be read in the Christian churches. I mean, starting with the seven churches mentioned in the book, but also continuously read in, in Christian churches everywhere. The book of Revelation contains a blessing for all who hear it, and by extension, also a blessing for all who study it seek to apply its message to their lives. I mean, in short, the book doesn't promise endless speculation and disagreement among people who study the book. It does promise the blessing of God. So those of you who have heard my previous three teaching blocks on this book will know that I've tried to avoid the, the this is that approach to Revelation. So what do I mean by that? Well, let me try to explain. Give you an example. Revelation 9, 7-9 says, In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. See, unfortunately, some folks can't restrain themselves, at least that's how I see it. I mean, they look around them and ask, well, what kind of an instrument of war in this present age looks and sounds remotely like what's described here? And then, identifying either, I don't know, hellfire missiles or a fighter jet or even a drone, they say, this is that. See, I find such an approach disrespectful to the book of Revelation. Revelation is not a book in which John is, you know, transported 2,000 years into the future and then saw things that his present vocabulary was not able to describe. See, the images of Revelation are not this is that. Instead, I've argued the images in Revelation are almost entirely borrowed from, not science fiction, but rather from the Old Testament. The locusts of Revelation bring to mind the locusts from the book of Joel. Locusts that foreshadow the Babylonian invasion in the Old Testament. And in Revelation, borrowing from the First Testament image of locusts, John describes a great army of demons who set out to destroy the human race and the church of Jesus Christ. Instead of guessing about what weapons might look like in the future, Revelation tells us of a great conflict in which Satan himself is active in the affairs of this world. And it's for that reason that the book describes the great spiritual forces at work in the world causing distress and suffering, and yet God is on the throne. 
And that's the picture that brings such hope in the book of Revelation. Properly understood, this book is not an invitation to speculate about future events. Rather, it's a book written to give insight and wisdom and courage and certainty as Christians face what seems like an uncertain future. You know, as I've sought to explain the book, I wanted my listeners to understand the outline of the book, which, interestingly enough, is really quite easy to outline. You know, after the scene in heaven, we've noticed that Revelation presents us with three very interesting groups of seven. First, we have the seven seals. Then that's followed by the seven trumpets. And then finally, the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And we've also noticed that alongside of each of these series of seven events, that there are also a number of what I've called interludes or breaks in the action. The interludes contain everything from a vision of a great company of God's people having safely arrived before the throne of God, the vision of an angel with a scroll, of two witnesses who are killed and rise from the dead, the vision of a woman giving birth and a dragon waiting to devour her child. I mean, each of these interludes or visions provide us with spiritual insight about both the great spiritual warfare that's occurring on earth and also about God's work to lead us to the point when he makes all things new. But let's talk about the three groupings of seven, that is the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls of God's wrath. In the past, I've argued that the seven seals should not be thought of as occurring during the Great Tribulation or the seven years at the end of human history. Rather, I've argued that the seven seals should be thought of as a description that helps us understand what life will be like between the first and the second coming of Christ. Not seven years, but rather the full number of years until Christ returns. And the reason I think that is because of the image that's presented in Revelation. Revelation doesn't say that there are seven scrolls, rather that there is one scroll with seven seals. It's not until all seven seals are broken that we actually get to look inside the scroll. So what is the scroll? Well, the scroll is the destiny of all peoples. It's it's God's plan for the unfolding of history. It's God's intention to make all things new. Now, as we begin to read Revelation 6, we see Jesus beginning to break the seals on the scroll he has taken from the hands of the Father. And if we're not careful... We will think that with the breaking of each seal, a portion of the scroll is being read and put into effect. But that's not the case. An ancient scroll would require all seals to be broken before the scroll can be opened. So the breaking of the seven seals is the introduction or the events that must happen before the great scroll is opened or before the coming of the very last days. It's not the end time events themselves. It's what happens before the last days. And so from my understanding of Revelation, I actually don't think we're introduced into the end of days until the seventh seal is broken and the scroll of God is revealed and and matters then move quickly to the end of history and the beginning of a new heaven and new earth. But if I have that right, then what are the seven trumpets and the seven bowls? Well, I think that Revelation chapter 7 to 17 cover the final period at the end of the age, an age that some call the Great Tribulation and others call Satan's Little Season. Now, during the next four weeks, we're going to be studying chapters 18 to 22. Chapter 18 into chapter 19 is the description of the fall of the kingdom of the Antichrist. 
That follows the second coming of Christ, the millennium, the judgment throne in which God judges the human race. And then and only then, after the end of this period of history, we hear God saying, behold, I am making all things new. See, in short, Revelation chapters 18 to 22, the passage of Revelation that we're we're going to be studying over the next four weeks, chronicles the end of the present age and the creation of a new age in which sin, death, sorrow, and evil are forever vanquished. So the reason for studying these five amazing chapters which make up the end of the book is because these chapters focus our minds beyond the present warfare and beyond the coming of the Great Tribulation. These chapters remind us that banking on this present earth is remarkably short-sighted. See, these chapters remind us that Caesar is not king of kings and lord of lords. Neither is any other kingdom. If you place your hope in this earth, you're placing your hope in a faulty area. Jesus Christ alone is king of kings and lord of lords, and for that reason, the church of Jesus Christ, even while living in tribulation and persecution, is to have great hope. Our hope is in the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. To him be glory forever, and may he always be and capture our imagination and our longing. John, a great beginning to this series, and we're just so excited that we're going to complete the book of Revelation in this volume of messages. But I think that comes to my question. You know, why is it so important, based upon all that we're going to look at, that we just had this sort of general understanding about what the book of Revelation is all about? Yeah, I mean, any book that we study, I mean, Revelation is just another Bible book. uh, But any book that we study, I mean, it's important to step back, have a look at the forest before we examine the trees. I mean, what is the lay of the land? And Revelation, as I've said, is, is actually quite simple to outline. But it also is this marvelous book that... You know, Bennett teaches us about this message of hope that seven churches who were living under this intense persecution, I mean, they would have heard this message and they would have just said, wow, you know, we can make it through this very dark tunnel that we're walking through because, I mean, look at what God has promised for those who love him. So I think it's important for us in our day to do the same thing. I mean, regardless of what we're going through, I mean, Revelation is this book that provides hope and a future, and that tells believers without any doubt whatsoever that our best days lie ahead of us, and it gives us a bit of an understanding of that. Such an important series to listen to, so remember to join us again tomorrow for The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 4, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Sarah wrote... I have been saved for over 50 years, was just a little girl, in fact. Back to the Bible has been part of my life forever, and I've given to the ministry even out of my allowance when I was little. Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life. There is depth yet practicality, challenge but hope. The world has changed, technology has made everything closer, ministries have changed. Yet, Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teachings. They have embraced technology while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. Sarah, thank you 
Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. If you have a story to share, or if you'd like to share a gift of support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.